Well, there's a literary device that is used by writers called seeding the plot or backseeding. You see, the author of any book knows where he or she is going in that story. They know the ending because they wrote the story. And so oftentimes, authors sow seeds or little hints early on in the story that are not fully understood until you get to the end of the story. One person calls these breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs that are dropped along the way, hints about how the story ends, but you don't really get the full picture until the story ends. Perhaps a modern example of that is in the film world, the Star Wars series. In the first Star Wars movie, the main character and hero, Luke Skywalker, is introduced along with his enemy, the asthma-suffering Darth Vader. But it's not until a later book that it is revealed that Darth Vader is actually Luke's father. And see, the writer seeds the plot, and then later it becomes clear. Well, the author of the story of the Bible is none other than God himself. It's a story that takes us from the beginning of the world, actually before the beginning of the world, into the eternal future. That book, this book, was written over a period of 1,500 years by some 40 human authors, but the ultimate author is God. And God often seeds the plot. He gives us hints. He gives us breadcrumbs of truth, which will only make sense at the end of the story. Well, this morning, we're going to study the short book of Ruth, only four chapters, and we'll see some significant seeds, some significant breadcrumbs, as it were, that are given here that only come to fruition at the end of the story. Now we know the end of the story, so we actually understand more than the actual actors in the story living at that time. So turn with me, please, to the book of Ruth. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Ruth is between Judges and 1 Samuel. You have the first five books of Moses, which we studied one at a time, then Joshua, then Judges. Then you have this little book, Ruth, sandwiched in there. And it is sandwiched in there between the book of Judges and the books of Samuel. That's the order in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's the order we have in our English Bibles. And the book of Ruth provides a fitting bridge between the book of Judges and Samuel. How so? Well, a couple weeks ago, we studied the book of Judges, and we saw that it ended with what was characteristic of that season of time. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And one of the reasons given for that anarchy and that chaos was there was no king in Israel. No major figure. Moses has died. Joshua has died. There's no major leader. And so everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. No king. Samuel, the book of Samuel, introduces us to the kingship in Israel. And the second king of Israel is David. And David becomes a major figure in the history of God's salvation. What we're going to see this morning is the connection between the book of Ruth and David, the coming king, who points us forward to the greater son of David, the king of kings, 
the Lord Jesus. Let's begin with what I'm calling the plot line of Ruth developed. I'm just going to go through the story. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know the story. If you're new to the Bible, my apologies. Eventually, you have to get to reading the book of Ruth, but I'm just going to go through the storyline of the book of Ruth. The events took place during the days of the judges. Ruth 1 Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So it's during the days of the judges, and there's a famine in the land, and an Israelite couple from Bethlehem of Judah want to get out of Dodge. They want to get out and get to where there's some food, and so they go to Moab. The man's name is Elimelech. His wife is Naomi. There was a famine in the land. Why was that? Well, back in Deuteronomy, God had given both blessings and curses to Israel. He said, if you obey me, you will be blessed. You will have rains from heaven and fruit from the ground. But if you disobey me, then you will be cursed, which includes the heavens being like brass and the earth being dry as dust and no fruit. And famine is one of the things that is threatened if they disobey God. And you know that during the book of the Judges, they were given to rampant idolatry, and so this famine is largely due to the judgment of God. Now, was it a good idea for Elimelech to take his family out of Israel into this pagan nation of Moab? Probably not. The text doesn't really find fault with him, but most commentators think that was probably not a good idea. This was the promised land. It's usually not good, and especially if you were in Sunday school, you realize when Lot went into Sodom, it didn't go well for him, and it, it likely wasn't going to go well for them if they went into a pagan land, which Moab was. As they go into Moab, tragedy strikes. The first tragedy is that Elimelech dies, and so Naomi is left with her two sons, Malon and Kilion. They marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. That's not Oprah, but it's Orpah and Ruth. And then another tragedy strikes. Those two men, her sons, die. So she's lost her husband, lost her two sons. Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Then she learns that God has visited his people, Israel. There's food in the land by God's mercy. And so she purposes to return to her homeland, Judah. With tears and kisses, she urges her daughters-in-law to return to their families, look, I can't provide any sons for you. You're young. You need to get remarried. Go back to your family. Go back to your home. They at first both decline and want to go with her. But on, on the second urging, the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, takes her up on that, kisses her goodbye, returns to her people, and it says in chapter 115, she returns to her gods. But Ruth clung to her. And we read these very poignant words, very familiar to many from weddings even, Ruth 1, 14 to 17. And they lifted up their voices, that is the daughters-in-law and Naomi, and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, very poignant commitment on the part of Ruth to cling to Naomi. So they go back to Bethlehem, and when they're there, the people welcome them. And then we're told in chapter 1, verse 22, that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. That's a seeding of the plot. That's significant. There's the providence of God. They come back at the time of the barley harvest. That will become important, as we'll see. At this point, we're told that um, Naomi had a kinsman to her husband, a near relative, a wealthy man named Boaz. And again, the writer is seeding the plot. Just mentions it that she has this wealthy relative, Boaz. Now, here they are, Naomi, a widow, her daughter-in-law, a widow. Widows did not fare well in that day. There was no welfare. They did not have a man to support them. They were impoverished. They were facing death. It was serious. And so in order to sustain them, Ruth says, look, let me go and glean in the fields and and get, get some food for us. And so Ruth requests permission of Naomi to go to a field and glean among the ears of grain with hopes, as she says, of finding a husband. She puts it, finding favor. We are told that she happened upon the field owned by Boaz. The Hebrew says, her chance chanced upon. It's really the amazing providence of God. And she comes to the field of Boaz, the man who's related to her deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, Ruth, as she's gleaning in the field, catches the eye of Boaz, and he takes a special interest in her. He inquires and finds out that she has returned with Naomi. Boaz takes measures to protect her from sexual assault by men in the field, telling her to stay close to his maids, commanding the servants not to touch her. When she wonders out loud to him why he is showing such favor to her since she is a foreigner, he reveals that he was aware of all that she had done for her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is the wife of his relative, Elimelech. He provides her with food and nourishment while she's working and even gives her some extra. Now, Ruth comes back and she reports to Naomi where she has been, that she was in the field of Boaz, the one who is the one near to Naomi, the close relative, one of the redeemers. Now, where does that come from? There was a practice in Israel called leverate marriage. I won't take the time uh, to read it, but in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it says, if a man dies and he has no son, his brother or near relative was to marry the widow to bring up sons in the name of the deceased, okay? So Boaz is this kinsman redeemer. He's a relative who has a certain duty to his deceased relative to marry the widow and bring up sons in his name. There's another principle in play here, and that's from Leviticus 25.25, and this is really crucial to the story. And Leviticus 25.25 says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So here's another principle in play. No doubt they had to sell some property when they moved, 
And now Naomi is bereft with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so that property needs to be reclaimed. The kinsman, the close relative, is responsible to buy that property back so that they can have some sustenance and they can keep it in the family. So Naomi realizes that Ruth has gleaned in the field of Boaz, their close relative. And she realizes that he has the potential to redeem them, to rescue them. He is the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi instructs Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to present herself before Boaz in a way that shows that she is interested in him. In a real sense, it's a marriage proposal in that culture. Naomi tells Ruth, wash up, get dressed in your best clothes, anoint yourself, and go to the threshing floor where, where Boaz will be sleeping because it's barley harvest time, and present yourself, lie at his feet. As the commentators say, not at his side, but lay at his feet. And then we read in Ruth 3, beginning at verse 8, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. One commentator, Gordon Ketty, says, this was not an invitation to fornication, but a formal proposal of marriage couched in the picturesque language of the time. And so Boaz is attracted to Ruth. She presents herself to him, and he desires to redeem her in the culture, and which would mean to marry her. But Boaz is aware that there's a relative closer to Elimelech than himself. And that man has, we might say, first dibs on marrying Ruth and redeeming the property. And so Boaz does the very honorable thing. He calls for a meeting at the city gate with that other relative. He invites 10 elders of the city. He himself may have been one of the elders. A very respectable man is Boaz. And basically, he's going to present this man with the opportunity. He wants to marry Ruth. He wants to be the redeemer, but he realizes someone else has first dibs, this other relative. And so I'm going to present to him that opportunity, and I want witnesses. So he does that. The other man says, well, I can redeem the property. But then Boaz says, well, but you also have to marry Ruth. And for whatever reason, he says, well, I can't do that. And because it's a package deal, that man is out. And according to the custom of the time, he takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz, which gives Boaz now the opportunity to marry Ruth and to redeem the property. You with me? Kind of, sort of? Okay. I know it's complex, especially if you've never read it. But now Boaz, he has the coast clear to marry Ruth and to redeem the property. So Boaz then publicly calls these witnesses to account that he is free to buy the land of his deceased relative and their sons and to marry Ruth. The elders and the other people affirm that they are witnesses and they give this blessing in chapter 4, 11, and 12. 
They say, all the people who are in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, that would be Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Well, that prayer was answered far beyond their imagination. And so that's a sketch of the story. Now let's look at the persons in the book of Ruth described. Tom Schreiner, the theologian, makes this statement. He says, one of the striking features of the book of Ruth is that all its characters are commendable. All of them live by and under the grace, chesed, of the Lord. And this is a refreshing contrast to the book of Judges, right? Remember two weeks ago, the book of Judges is depressing. Even the heroes, even the good guys are tainted with character weaknesses. Gideon, uh, one of the judges, a man weak in faith, doesn't want to tear down the altar of Baal by day, he goes by night. He continually asks for signs because he's doubting God. Jephthah, one of the warrior judges, but he makes this rash vow. Samson, strongest man who ever lived, and yet tainted by his sensuality. As one commentator said, I noticed that, noted last week or two weeks ago, that he fell for women like Israel fell for false gods. And so even the good guys in the book of Judges are tainted. But here in the book of Ruth, every character is commendable. Every character is worthy of imitation. Let's look at the three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. First, Naomi. Some commentators fault Naomi for what appears to be expressions of self-pity and complaint against the Lord. She loses her husband. Her two sons die, and she laments, chapter 1, verse 13, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. When she returns to her homeland, people are glad to see her, and they say, is this Naomi? And this is her response, chapter 1, 20 and 21. Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Was it self-pity? Was it resentment against the Lord? Some commentators think so, but I appreciate what Tom Schreiner says. He says she does not minimize the evils that she experienced. She did not give a saccharine response that was contrary to the depth of human experience. She lamented and grieved over the pain that had come her way. Some might say she was simply being human. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. However we interpret her words there, Naomi presents as a godly woman. First of all, when the famine is lifted, she wants to go back to her homeland. Moab is not my home. This pagan land is not my home. I want to go back to my people, to the people of God. And so that says something about her. As soon as the famine was lifted, she set her heart to go back to Bethlehem in Judah. And then 
Note how selflessly she urges her daughters-in-law to return to their homes. She wants them to find new husbands and a future for themselves. They evidently love her. She has ingratiated herself to her daughters-in-law. And she's unselfishly, don't go, it's, things are not going well with me, so don't go with me. You go back and get remarried and have a future. She also recognizes that it was God's sovereign hand that brought the suffering upon her. In God's providence, my, my son preached on Ruth 1 when we were out there, and he noted one thing about um, Naomi. She was a Calvinist. She recognized that it was the sovereign hand of God that had brought these things upon her. He also noted that she was human in her suffering. Again, Tom Schreiner gives her the benefit of the doubt when he says, yet Naomi was not suggesting that the Lord was defiled by any evil in what he did to her. The Lord was just and good despite the evils that Naomi experienced from his hand. And so we see that even though it was a bitter experience, she submits to the dark providences of God in her life. Naomi was also selflessly looking out for Ruth. When Ruth wants to glean in the field in order to find favor with a man and perhaps find a husband, we see that she says, go, my daughter, go. She wants Ruth to prosper. When Naomi finds, learns of the favor that Boaz has shown to Ruth, this is her response. Remember, Naomi comes back, and I gleaned providentially, by chance, in the field of our relative Boaz. And when she reports that to Naomi, listen to her response. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. One thing Naomi displays is gratitude, thankfulness. And what I want to commend to you is that gratitude, thankfulness is rooted in humility. Why do I say that? Because the proud person rarely says thankful. Do you know why? Because the proud person has a sense of indebtedness to them, a sense of deservedness, a sense of entitlement. When you do good to a proud person, that person thinks, well, I deserved it. In fact, I even deserved more than I was given. So rarely does a proud person express gratitude, and thanksgiving. Friends, we're called to be humble and not proud, aren't we? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do we know? It's hard to measure pride and humility in our hearts. Let me suggest this as a measure. How often do you bless others for doing good to you? How often do the simple words, thank you, fall from your lips? I dare say that's one of the measures of the humility or pride in our hearts. The humble person feels, I don't deserve anything. And when you do me good, I am thankful. Ask yourself, how often do the words thank you come from your pen, your keyboard, or your lips? It may be one measure of your humility. Naomi was a grateful woman 
because she was humble. In chapter 2, in verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, uh, see, Boaz had said to Ruth, look, I want you to hang with my maids. I want to keep you safe. There are predatorial men out there in the field, and I want to keep you safe, so hang with my maids. And then when she reported that to Naomi, Naomi said, my daughter, uh, let me find it, 222, she said, Naomi said to Ruth, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So you see, Naomi is concerned for Ruth's well-being. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, then Naomi, said, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Naomi presents as a godly woman, a selfless woman, who's looking out for her daughters-in-law, in particular Ruth, looks out for her well-being. And friends, to be concerned about others altruistically, unselfishly, is a mark of grace. I often quote 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. One of the sure marks of conversion is that we are turned from what we all are by nature, self-absorbed, self-centered, self-focused, to having a genuine altruistic concern for others. Has your heart been converted? Are you a Christian? If so, there's been this massive change in your life from a preoccupation with number one to a legitimate, not perfect, but a genuine altruistic concern for others. That grace was manifested in Naomi's life. The last thing we read of her is when Ruth and, and um, Boaz get married and they have a, a baby. We're going to end with that. And then it says in 4.16, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Last thing we hear of Naomi was a, an act of selfless service nursing her granddaughter. All right, so there we have Naomi. She is a good woman, a God-fearing, God-loving, selfless woman whom God brought through a season of deep sorrow and who ended up blessing others even as she was blessed. Now we have Ruth. Just like with Naomi, there are women named Naomi, right? And there are a lot of women named Ruth. Have you ever met a woman named Jezebel? No, not worthy of imitation. But there are a lot of Ruths, right? I don't know if we have any Ruths here. I think we have a, a Candace Ruth, don't we? We have a middle name, so we have a Ruth in the house. And you have a middle name, Ruth, too. We have two Ruths in the house, middle name, Ruth is a good name to name your daughter because she's worthy of imitation. She's one of the most virtuous women in the Bible. First, she's a woman of saving faith. We read those beautiful words, I will not part from you, Naomi. I'm going to go where you go, and your God is going to be my God, and your people are going to be my people. That marks Ruth's conversion. She was willing to leave the gods of Moab, which included Chemosh, who demanded child sacrifice. And she recognized that Yahweh is the true and living God, and he is my God. And I'm going back with you to worship your God with your people who will be my people. And so Ruth had a saving faith in the true and living God. And by the way, that is the mark of any true convert in any 
stage of redemptive history that one is willing to leave behind their gods. Whatever you worship, whatever gave, you gave your trust and obedience and love to before, now you give your trust, your obedience, and love to the living and true God. And then God's people become your people, and you want to be with God's people. You want to come and worship with them and fellowship with them. That's the mark of a convert in any age. God becomes your God, and God's people become your people. So Ruth had a saving faith. She had a strong loyalty. When it says in 114 that she clung to Naomi, that's a strong word. It's a covenant, a word of covenant loyalty in the Hebrew, dabak. It's the word used in 224, where it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife in covenant loyalty. That's the word. It's often used of how Israel is to cling to the Lord. And so Naomi was a woman, or rather Ruth was a woman of covenant loyalty to Naomi and no doubt to the God of Naomi who had become her God. Um, she's a woman of diligence, a woman of industriousness. Here they are impoverished, two widows. And she says, we need to do something about it. I'm going to go work in the fields. I'm not going to loiter. I'm not going to wait for something to fall from heaven. I'm going to go work in the fields to help provide sustenance. She's a woman of industry, a woman of diligence, a woman of hard work. She is a woman of sweet submission to authority and counsel. When she says to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, and Naomi says, go, my daughter, then notice she asks, she treats Naomi like a mother, and she is submissive to her authority. When Boaz and Naomi urge Ruth to stay close to his maids for her own protection, we read, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz. She took the counsel of Boaz and the counsel of her mother-in-law. When Naomi counsels Ruth about how to present herself to Boaz to, so as to reveal her interest in him, her reciprocal interest, then she responds, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. As you read the book of Ruth, you get the picture of Ruth as one who is humbly submissive, sweetly submissive to authority and to counsel. And God calls us that, doesn't he? Ultimately, we submit to him, but children, you are to obey your parents in the Lord. That's your first and chief command. Wives, though our society hates it, are called be submissive to your husband, not slavishly, but unto the Lord. He is your head. Doesn't mean you don't have a voice, you don't have an opinion, and he ought to listen to it, but ultimately, he is your head, and the Bible says, hupotasso, submit yourself, put yourself under your husband's headship. And don't rebel against it. We are to submit to leadership in the church. Obey your leaders, submit to them. Insofar as we give you the word of God, by submitting to us, you're submitting to God and his word. We're to submit to our employers. And so Ruth is a beautiful example of sweet submission to authority and counsel. And she too, like her mother-in-law, is a woman of humble gratitude when Boaz shows her that kindness, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She says, I don't deserve this. Why are you treating me so well? 
She doesn't have a proud sense of entitlement. She's amazed that he's being so kind to her. Humble gratitude. And she is a woman of excellence and virtue. Verse Chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz says to her, you are a woman of excellence. Hayil in the Hebrew. It's used 85 times in the Bible, mostly describing men. The men who are hayil, men of excellence, are elite warriors, men of military prowess, also capable men, the kind of man you put in charge of something and it's going to get done. They're the men that describes the judges that Moses appointed to help him judge at the council of his father-in-law, Jethro. They were men who hate dishonest gain. So the idea of excellence or virtue speaks of ability and honorableness of character, and there's no reason not to apply that to Ruth. In fact, it's the very word used in Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31.10, Proverbs 31 woman, an excellent wife who can find Ruth was such an excellent wife. And I believe, as one of the pastors here, that we have many virtuous, excellent women in this congregation. And we who are husbands ought to take note of that and rise up and call you blessed. Whatever your name is, I think there are many Ruths in our congregation. And you who are children should give great thanks for that. And we who are husbands ought to be deeply grateful and express our gratefulness. And then we have Boaz. From the beginning to the end, Boaz presents as a, a godly man, an honorable man, a man of integrity, he is a model man. He is a God-fearing man. Let me note just a few things. He had a good relationship with his workers. Chapter 2, verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his, the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. He's a rich man. He didn't have to be out there in the fields, but he's out there blessing his workers, his laborers, with spiritual language. May the Lord bless you. And when he went away, they didn't say, oh, there's Boaz again doing that God talk. What a hollow, noisy gong he is. No, they blessed him back. It says that he had a good testimony with his workers. When he blessed them in the name of God, they took it seriously because they knew he took God seriously. He had a good testimony with his workers. He showed them respect. He was not a hypocrite who simply used God talk. Boaz is a man of spiritual discernment. In chapter 2, 11, and 12, Boaz says to Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Boaz was aware that Ruth had been converted. And he had the spiritual discernment to know, though she's a, a pagan in her origins from Moab, that pagan country, she had taken refuge in the Lord. And he had spiritual discernment. And what he was most attracted to in her, doesn't say anything about her physical beauty, whether she was or wasn't, but what he was most attracted to was the fact that she was one who loved and knew the Lord. He had spiritual discernment. Boaz is also a kind and generous man. He treats Ruth with great kindness. 
and generosity. In chapter 2, 8 and 9, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. He was an older man, though she became his wife. Do not go to glean in another field. Further, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids, lest let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what um, the servants draw. And there were other passages where he's very kind and generous. He's also an honest and honorable man. He loved Ruth. He wanted to marry her. But he realized there's another man who's a closer relative. He has first dibs. Now, he could have schemed to get around that. That man had no knowledge of Ruth. He could have schemed to marry Ruth without going through the proper procedure. But he said, no, this man has first dibs. I need to offer that to him. He evidently trusted the overarching sovereignty of God. I can imagine his prayer. Lord, I love this woman. I want to be her redeemer. I want to purchase that property. I want to marry her. I love her. But Lord, someone else has first claim upon her. And I'm going to trust you. If you want me to marry her, then let that man decline. Otherwise, your will be done, and I will accept it. He's a man of honesty and honorableness. And so we have in the book of Ruth some people to imitate. Are we to be imitators? Yes. The book of 3 John, John tells us he presents two people, Diotrephes and Demetrius. And then he says, the apostle John does, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Diotrephes was a man who loved to be first. Diotrephes was a, a good man. And John says, don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. And we have in the book of Ruth, some good role models to imitate as men and women. Let's imitate Naomi in her grace and bearing up under extreme suffering as she faces these dark providences of losing her husband and her sons. Yes, it was a bitter experience, but she did not lose her trust in or love for the God who had brought this upon her. Let's imitate her in that, let's imitate her in her selflessness, her selfless concern for her daughters-in-law and their well-being and their prosperity. Let's imitate Ruth in her saving faith, her strong loyalty, her sweet submission to authority, her humble gratitude, and her excellence of virtue. And let's imitate Boaz in his fear of the Lord, the good relationship he had with his laborers, the mutual respect, the respect he showed for them, the respect he earned from them, his spiritual discernment and being attracted to Ruth because of her spirituality. Let us imitate him in his kindness, his generosity, his honesty, and his honorableness. Respectable people to imitate, but we close with considering the purpose of Ruth discerned. I submit to you that the main reason Ruth is in our Bibles is not to simply give us moralistic lessons or good role models to follow, though we have them. We're going to end with, I think, answering the question, why is this little book of Ruth, this little scenario given to us between the book of Judges and the books of Samuel? Well, 
What is the purpose of the book? God has a plan, and he's working that plan. It's unfolding incrementally. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. That one day, Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman is going to arise and crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be this ultimate spiritual victory. And we're seeing the story unfold. This little book takes us a little further in that direction. First of all, Boaz, as kinsman redeemer, is a type of Christ. Ruth and Naomi were impoverished widows. They had no wherewithal, nothing to sustain themselves. They were needy. They needed to be redeemed. She, Ruth needed a husband to provide for her, and they needed their property reclaimed. They were needy and helpless. And in that culture, Boaz became the kinsman redeemer. He is a type of Christ. Four things were necessary for Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer, and these are fulfilled in Jesus. First of all, the kinsman needed to be a blood relative. Is Jesus our blood relative? Yes, we're coming up on the celebration of his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became one of us. While not ceasing to be fully God, he became fully man. He's one of us. The kinsman must have the money to purchase the land. He had to have the wherewithal to do it. Does Jesus have what it takes to redeem us? What was needed? We're under a curse because of our sin. What was needed was a perfectly sinless life. Jesus lived that perfectly sinless life. What we need is a perfect righteousness to stand before a perfectly holy God. Jesus earned that perfect righteousness. So Jesus has the wherewithal. Jesus has the resources to redeem us. Also, the kinsmen must be willing. This closest relative said, eh, I can buy the land. I'm not, gonna wear, I'm not willing to marry Ruth. He was not willing. Boaz was willing. Was Jesus willing? You know he was. He says in John 10, 18, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. He loved you Christians so much, he voluntarily, intentionally, and deliberately laid his life down. He wasn't a hapless victim of the Romans. He laid it down. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He was willing. And the kinsman must be willing to marry the wife of the deceased kinsman. Has Jesus done that? Yes. We, the church, are his bride. He has betrothed us. He has covenanted with us in an eternal marriage. So, Boaz points to Jesus, the kinsman redeemer. And then Boaz and Ruth and Boaz are King David's great-grandparents. At the end of the book, they get married, and we read that this blessing upon them. And then verse 17 of chapter 4, the neighbor women gave him, the son born to them, a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. Get this. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, and Jesus is the greater son of David, and in the lineage of Matthew 1, 6, and 7, 
Guess who's named? Ruth. Ruth is in the, the, the lineage of Jesus. That's why this book is included. One other reason, Ruth is a Gentile, a non-Jew, but she's in the line of Christ. What does that symbolize? That one day, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Jesus Christ. He came not only to save Jews, he came to save Gentiles, a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we have a hint of that in this Moabite proselyte being converted and being in the very lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. And so, as one person says, Christ does not point us to Ruth. Ruth points us to Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for every part of your word, even this little book, which does more than teach us moralistic lessons and gives us role models, but teaches us about the coming of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom that third promise to Abraham will be fulfilled, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. We thank you, Lord, and thank you that we are part of that great redeemed community. Bless us now as we celebrate um, the conversion, salvation of Cody Groff in the waters of baptism. In Jesus' name.